not, not because, let, let me show you something, not, not because um, I'm going to be able to give you the tools here to be able to do this kind of thing, but just to let you know the kinds of things that are available to people who want to get serious about studying the Word of God in a bit more of a formal sense. Open your Bibles to Ephesians 5, okay? Ephesians 5. I want to illustrate something for you. This is all part of, we're still talking a bit about that grammatical component of Bible study, of hermeneutics. We've talked about the fact that you need to understand what the words mean. We've talked about the fact that you need to understand the tenses of the verbs, paying attention to those kinds of things. Another thing that's also very, very important, friends, particularly in the letters, Romans to Jude, (coughs) particularly in the letters is the grammar that's being used. And sometimes our English translations distort the grammar a little bit as it appears in the original text, and and, uh, no English translation could fully, comprehensively communicate all that's in the Greek text. That's why we need teachers and commentaries and those kinds of things. But I I just want to show you an example of this. Look at verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Now, I'm going to rock your world right now. Because the Greek text in Ephesians 5.22 reads like this. Wives, to your own husbands. Submit does not appear there in the Greek text. Some of your translations, to show that it doesn't appear in the Greek text, will italicize it. Sometimes your translations will do that. But submit does not appear in the Greek text. It reads, wives, to your husbands. They say, well, where in the world do they get submit from? Well, rightly so, they borrow it from the prior verse. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. But we have a little bit of a problem there because verse 21, submitting is not a verb. That, that's not a verb. It's a participle. This is called a participial phrase. And every participial phrase hangs off a main verb. We'll we'll get to this near the end of today, but when you're studying a passage, friends, you always want to find the main verb, the main verb. The key idea is always in the main verb. So I, I want you to see that verse 22 and 21 are very much tied together because the concept of submission, verse 22, is borrowed from verse 21, submitting. But we don't have a verb in verse 21, so to get the main idea, we've got to go back through the passage uh, to verse 20, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus. We still don't have a verb. Got to find a verb. Verse 18, 19, addressing one another in psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, singing and making melody to your heart with the Lord. We still don't have a verb. We finally get to a verb in verse 18, and we have two, one negative, one positive. The negative, don't get drunk with wine. The positive, be filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, I'm going to draw you a diagram. In the Greek verb that's used here in verse 18, be filled with the Spirit. It's what we call a second person plural. This means it applies to you all, not you individual. So that the command here does not mean you who are really spiritually mature, be filled with the Spirit. This is something that is supposed to be true of every person. Every Christian is to be filled with the Holy Spirit. By the way, 
This is in what we call the imperative mood, that is the mood of command. Therefore, to not be filled with the Spirit is disobedience. This is a command. Be filled with the Spirit, you all, or for our southern brethren, y'all. Y'all, be filled with the Spirit. And then we say, hmm, how can we know what it really means to be Spirit-filled? I know these are the people who close their eyes and raise their hands during the song service. No. These are the people who always speak in soft, hushed, pious tones and never raise their voice. No. Right here, Paul tells us how we can know for certain that a person is spirit-controlled, spirit-filled. He gives us four participial phrases that help define what it means to be filled with the Spirit. The first one is, I'll give you the first one, speaking, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Okay? I'm not going to diagram the whole sentence. I'll just mark out the participle. Speaking to one another. How can I know that a person is authentically filled with the Spirit? They speak words and sing words that edify. Notice here that the speaking and the singing is not vertical, it is horizontal. What's the second participle there? What's that? Nope, before that. Singing and making melody to the Lord. Now, notice how it's directed. To the Lord with your heart. So singing and making melody kind of goes together. Making melody. This is to the Lord. Notice it's more vertical in its orientation. How can I know that a person is authentically filled with the Spirit? Words that minister. Speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, spiritual songs. How can I know that a person is authentically controlled by the Holy Spirit, filled with the Holy Spirit? Ah, they've got a song in their heart to the Lord. Singing and making melody in their heart to the Lord. Thirdly, what's the third participial phrase? Always giving thanks. How can I know that a person is authentically spirit-filled? This is a person who's thankful all the time for all things. He's not a whiner, complainer, bitter. Nothing's ever enough. Oh, this is a person always thankful, always grateful. Disposition of gratitude marks their lives. And what's the fourth one? Submitting. Who submits? Wives? Everybody submits. We're submitting to one another. Submission is the disposition of everybody in the Christian life, not just wives. Now, how this works itself out in a family, different story. But men have to be submissive too. Submission happens on a multiplicity of levels. You need to be submissive to your pastor. And we've only got about a dozen verses to show you that. Got to be submissive to the government. Got to be submissive to people in authority. All kinds of ways submission displays itself. But let's remove all of the super spirituality from this business of being controlled and filled by the Spirit. How do we know when a person truly is Spirit-filled? They, 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 they speak words to people that build up, that edify, speaking to one another. Singing and making melody. There's this worship orientation toward the Lord. These are people who are always, always thankful for all things. And these are people who by the nature of their lives emulate and display submission. And therefore, friends, when we get to the very next verse about wives and the wives needing to submit, and submission is borrowed from here... You see why I'm showing this to you? When we want to start talking about families, we typically begin at that verse there. And you know what we do? We divorce wives from the only source of power by which they're going to be able to live a life of submission toward their husbands. We need to begin here. Because grammatically, this is dependent upon this. You see what I'm saying? 
So you want to talk about husbands, wives, parents, children, slaves, masters? Fine. Begin here, not here. And when you know a little bit something about grammar, you can see how this all hangs together. Okay? Now, good commentaries will help do that for you. We'll talk about commentaries later. Um, but here's a place where when you know a little something about grammar, and of course this is what we're trying to teach our students at the seminary. It's not for everybody necessarily, but, but, but understanding a little bit about grammar helps you understand that you must never begin here. You have to begin here. Otherwise, you cut off from wives the very source by which they can live out their Christianity. Ryan, I saw your hand up, huh? I was just wondering if there was room in uh, being spirit-filled with sarcasm, which is speaking words of edification. <laughs> There's an agenda. Yeah, th- I, I'm, I'm sure there is, and I don't know what the agenda is. Of, of course, we do have to say, in, in all seriousness, just for a moment, several places where Jesus was incredibly sarcastic. Okay, okay? so you see, I, I, I hope this excites you. This excites me. This, this really excites me, you see. And in my mind, this is huge pastorally, that if, that if I decide, gee, our congregation needs to hear a series on the family, I don't begin here. I, I have to begin here because that's the way Paul intended it. The fact that there is no word submit here in the text means I've got to be dependent on this. And if I'm dependent on this, I've got to be dependent on this. You've got to know how these sentences all fit together, friends. And I, I could show you dozens of other examples of this very kind of thing. We won't take any more time. If you want more later, come back at me and we'll look at those. Okay? So in this grammatical area, we're concerned about words, definitions, the tenses of words, how sentences fit together. Um, and again, we'll talk more about it in a bit, huh? You've got to be able to know what the subject is, the verb is, the object, all those kinds of things. And then finally, contextual. This is huge. It may be the single most important of these five aspects of hermeneutics. A person who knows nothing about Greek or Hebrew or anything like that can be a tremendously effective Bible reader, student, and teacher if they are very, very much committed to this contextual emphasis. Ignoring it will be the cause of your greatest mistakes. Being rigorous with it will help you to get it right ah, 90% of the time, probably. What do we mean by this? The Bible can only be rightly discerned when the individual words, phrases, verses, or paragraphs are seen in an ever-widening circle of surrounding verses, paragraphs, chapters, and books. It means I avoid what J.I. Packer calls evangelical cigarettes. I strip a verse out of its context, drag on it, makes me feel good. And we use the Bible in a way it was never intended to be used. Let me give you a couple examples. Turn to John 15. Let me just show you a few examples of this. People make this mistake all the time in the Bible, ignoring this. You get rigorous with this, friends, and you are going to be right way more often than you'll be wrong. Here's a verse that we hear stripped out of its context by the health and wealth people over and over and over and over again. Joel Osteen has made millions off of stripping this verse out of its context and people of that ilk. Verse 17. If you abide in me 
And my words abide in you. Ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. And we turn that into a generic prayer promise. Chapter 15, verse 7. Did I say something else? 17. Okay. Sorry. 15, 7. 15, 7. I'm sorry. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. Bigger car, healthy body, healing, better marriage, wayward kids, coming back, all kinds of things. What's the subject of verse 1? Fruit bearing. What's the subject of verse 2? Fruit bearing. What's the subject of verse 3? Fruit bearing. What's the subject of verse 4? Fruit bearing. What's the subject of verse 5? Fruit bearing. What's the subject of verse 6? Fruit bearing. What's the subject of verse 7? A generic prayer promise. What's the subject of verse 8? Fruit bearing. Verse 9, fruit bearing. It's all about fruit bearing. This isn't a generic prayer promise. This is a prayer promise related to bearing fruit. And in this context, what's the fruit he's talking about? He's talking, what's that? Mm, No. And you'll hear a lot of people say that this is referring to the fruit of the Spirit. Just because a figure of speech is used one place in the Bible doesn't mean that it means the same exact thing when it's used in another place. Is he talking here about love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control? No. Drop down to verse 16 now. Look at it. Jesus says, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. The fruit is the consequence of our going. This is the fruit of souls. This is the fruit of people being brought to faith in Christ. This is spiritual productivity. And so in the midst of all of this, we have this glorious prayer promise related to fruit bearing. So what you don't want to do, friends, is take a verse, extricate it from its context, and get it to say something that it was never intended to say. If you are rigorous about this contextual argument, you'll be right way more often than you'll be wrong. Look at chapter 14, verse 13. Whatever, chapter 14, verse 13. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Is that a generic prayer promise? Lord, I got my final exams. You tell me whatever I ask in your name, that you'll do. I didn't study a whole lot, Lord. So, so, so please help, help me. No, actually... In the Greek text, the very first word in verse 13 is the word and. And and does not start a new idea and continues an idea that's already in motion. So in the prior verse, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do and greater works than these will he do. Why? One, because I'm going to the Father. And two, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Now, Friends, we've not got the time to unpack all of this. It's not necessary to prove my point. It's just assume, uh, get, cut me a little slack, and, 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 and let me just tell you that the greater works here in this passage has a reference to the conversions of people. Jesus says, you're going to see greater conversions than I ever saw. They're not going to perform greater miracles than Jesus performed. No way. The record of the book of Acts does not reveal that. What the book of Acts reveals is... There are greater conversions than Jesus ever realized in the very first message even that the apostles ever preached. 3,000 people are saved. Jesus never experienced that in the totality of his ministry. But 
on what basis will you be able to do the greater works? Number one, because I am going to the Father. And in the Gospel of John, we come to discover that his going to the Father means that the Holy Spirit will come. You'll have my spirit. And I give you a prayer promise related to these greater works. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. You read that in its context, friends, and you realize you can't strip it out of its context. You can't strip it out of its context and make it a generic prayer promise. There is nothing generic about that. You know what we do with our children in five-day clubs, vacation Bible schools, all those kinds of things? We have them memorize Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. You remember that verse? The Word of God is sharper, effectual, living, than any two-headed sword, piercing as far as the blah, 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 blah. We, well, every children memorize that. Wonderful verse about the Word of God. And we forget the fact that the verse begins with the word for. That word introduces the explanation for something that has preceded it. And you know what you read about in everything that leads up to that verse in Hebrews chapter 3 and 4? The wilderness wanderers. They were brought out of Egypt. They heard the word of God. They refused to believe it. They perished in the wilderness. So to you, don't you hear the word of God and refuse to believe it for the word of God is living sharper. Sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing as far as soul and spirit, judging the thoughts and intentions of the heart. You know what that verse is saying? The word of God is a weapon of judgment. Don't muck around with it. And we know that because the verse begins with the word for, which means it's an explanation of what has come before. You see? So you, you just you want to avoid this at all costs, stripping things out of its context. We do this so often. In, you know where I see it more than anywhere else is in children's curriculum. I saw it in our church over and over and over and over again. Children's curriculum. I see it in women's materials. And I also see it a lot in parenting materials. So desperate to get the Bible to answer all our questions that we get verses to say all kinds of things that they were never intended to say. I've had women come up to me and tell me, you know, the Bible teaches that birth control of all kind is sin. And I know that they've read something that stripped a verse out of context somewhere. Um, so, so you want to be very, very careful, friends, always to rigorously keep things in its context. All right? So many other illustrations of this I could give you. In fact, let me, let me give you one more. Turn to Matthew 18. Okay? We could spend all day looking at these examples that so many of us have grown up with. We just have assumed that they're right. Every single Sunday growing up in the morning and evening service, our dear pastor would begin the service in his prayer by saying, Lord, you tell us that wherever two or three are gathered in your name, there you are meeting with them. Look at verse 20. Where two or three are... I'm going to read it for you, okay? Tell me if I get it right. Where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. Did I read it rightly? No. Why not? Four, which means it doesn't stand alone. It's related to what has proceeded. Okay, well, I'll go to verse 19. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. Boy, there's another verse that's stripped out of its context. But you don't begin a new idea with the word again. Again implies uh, it's connected to what's preceded. So I've got to go back a verse. Truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among you. So in verse 18, uh, whatever you bind on earth. Who is the you that he's referring to? Got to go back. Verse 17. 
If he refuses to listen to them, huh, who's the them he's referring to? Tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and as a tax collector. So verse 17, if he refuses to listen to them, who's the them? Got to go back. Verse 16, but if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. But you don't begin a new idea with the word but. But introduces a contrast to what has preceded. Got to go back. Verse 15, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you so that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Why would we want to do this hard work? Because you have three promises attached to it. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall have already been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have already been loosed in heaven. Again I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, in relationship to what I've just been talking to you about... It will be done for them by my Father in heaven. Why? For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among you. Now, friends, you read that in its context, and that's not the way to open a small prayer meeting, is it? You get my point? I, I'm, I'm, I am not exaggerating. You get committed to this contextual, this contextual emphasis, and, and you'll be right way more often than you're wrong. You don't need to know anything about Greek. You don't need to know anything about Hebrew. You read things in their contexts. And you will do just fine 90% of the time. But you need to be a bulldog about this. Because we use, verses, we use verses like verse 20 all the time and make them mean things they were never intended to mean. Okay? This contextual argument is huge. And not only do I need to understand how a word fits in its sentence, in its paragraph, in its section, in its chapter, in its book, in its testament, in the whole of the Bible. And ultimately, that's why every sermon I ever preach eventually takes me to Jesus Christ. Because he is the theme of the whole Bible. So you want to take a word? You want to take a little sentence? Understand what it means? Fine. Just work out the circles of context. You've got to see how that thing fits even within the entirety of the whole Bible. Because how many places in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy do you find the name of Jesus mentioned? Zero. Jesus says in John 5, Moses wrote of me. Moses wrote of Jesus? Jesus said he did. Jesus wrong? So just because his name isn't there, does that mean I can't preach him? No. But when I see how that passage fits within the overall telling of the, one, the Bible's one major storyline, then I can see how Leviticus can get me to Jesus. Then I can see how Deuteronomy can get me to Jesus. Okay. The Bible's ultimate storyline is God's purpose to save the human race through Jesus Christ. You need to know that. Because everything else in the Bible, all the little stories, help contribute to the telling of the big story. So you want to preach David and Goliath? You want to teach David and Goliath? Great. You want to teach your children David and Goliath? Fine. Wonderful. But don't make it a sanctified Jack and the Beanstalk story. You want to talk about Noah and the Ark? Fine. Don't make it a sanctified Dr. Doolittle story. 
That is one piece of telling the overall story of God's plan to save the human race through His Son, Jesus Christ. The entire Bible, you understand, friends, is an outworking of Genesis 3. The seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman fighting against one another until ultimately the seed of the woman crushes the seed of the serpent. The entire Bible is the outworking of that statement. So that David and Goliath is an expression of what was talked about in the garden consummated in Jesus Christ, the greater David. So I always want to spiral out to see where this fits ultimately in all of the Bible. Okay? Does this make sense to you? Seeing things in its context? I, I sure hope they do. Okay? Any questions about that just before we move on? Huh? You're being very, very quiet today. Ryan told me that you were a very rambunctious feisty, mean-spirited group. Yes, Sam. Dealing with words, and as you look up words in the Greek and Hebrew and all that, you'll talk to someone and they'll say, well, that's not what the Greek word means. And, you know, so you look up the Greek, you look up the word in the Greek, and it says, you know, the word may be move, and so to inch forward, to whatever, has like 25 definitions. Now, how do you discern or evaluate the text to find out which of those definitions of that particular word you use for the, for the text? Killer question, Sam, and, and we're going to get to it in a moment. But, but let me just give you a quick short answer. The question he's asking is, when you look up, um, well... We were talking about the Holy Spirit. In the Gospel of John, John 14, 15, 16, the Holy Spirit is referred to as what? What? Well, see, the very fact we have some translations, comforter, counselor, helper. The Greek term is the term parakletos. And so if you look up the word parakletos in a Greek dictionary, you'll find you got about 20 choices. It has a very wide semantic range. That's what we call that. So you say, Art, how do we know which one it means at any particular point in time? Do I get to pick? Oh, I like 17 best. I'm going to put that here. That's what a lot of people think you can do. That's why the Amplified Bible is not that helpful of a tool. Okay? And, the, and the, the brief answer, Sam, and I'm going to give you some examples of this later on. You come back at me if it's not sufficient, okay? Uh, uh, <clears throat> um, is that the, the, the number one principle rule about word studies is context is king. Context is king. So you got, you got 15 different choices. You don't get to choose from all 15. You say, in this context, which of those 15 seems to be most pertinent? Sometimes the word parakletos means defense attorney. Sometimes the word parakletos means prosecuting attorney. So, for example, 1 John chapter 2, verse 1. If anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. The term advocate, parakletos. There, defense attorney. You've got a defense attorney with the Father. John chapter 16, and when the Spirit comes, the helper, the parakletos, Jesus says, he will convict the world of sin and righteousness judgment. Their defense attorney, no, prosecuting attorney. Sometimes he can be a helper, sometimes he can be a comforter. You say, which does it mean? 
understanding what's going on in the context forces our choices. So always remember, friends, context is king. Context is king. You always want to be careful of people who are not very experienced at word studies because they'll often say something like this. Agape always means... No Greek word ever always means. For everybody who says agape always means this, I've got five or six other passages I can take them to and say, you know what, this is agape. It doesn't mean anything of what you said. So always remember, context shapes the meaning of a word. A word doesn't shape what's going on in the context. Okay, We'll come back with some illustrations of this. Okay? All right, let me define a couple more terms, and then we'll jump a bit into the process of actual Bible study. We're just these are things you need to keep in your mind before you ever pick up a pencil. Okay, that 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 defines for us this term hermeneutics, the science and art of biblical interpretation. Our approach to the Bible is a literal, historical, grammatical, contextual approach to the Bible. All right? Now, you often hear the term exegesis What do we mean by the term exegesis? It's really simple, friends. When you take all the principles of hermeneutics, you sit down in a chair, pick up a pencil, and you begin to apply them, now you're doing exegesis. In other words, it is the application of the hermeneutical principles to the biblical text in order to understand and explain it. So the moment you take those principles we've just talked about, you open up your Bible and you begin to study the historical background. You begin to look up the meanings of words. You see how sentences fit together grammatically. You see how that particular phrase fits within the context of the, of the paragraph and the chapter and the book. You are doing exegesis. You are an exegete. Exegesis means to draw out. That's what we want to do. Eisegesis means to read in. That's what you want to avoid at all costs. You want to draw out. You do not want to read in, okay? So, in technical usage, hermeneutics aims to establish the methodological principles necessary to interpret the biblical text, while exegesis aims to apply these principles in the actual process of unfolding the meaning of the text. So, in general, hermeneutics is related to exegesis as theory is to practice. So, you start doing exegesis when you pull out your little tablet and you start writing down the meanings of words, seeing how things appear in their context, okay? That's what we mean by the term exegesis. Then what about exposition? Exposition is what happens when you get up in front of your Sunday school class and start teaching what you found. When you're in front of your women's Bible study and you start explaining the meaning of a passage, you are doing exposition. It's what Ryan does every Lord's Day when he stands at this place. That's what I'll do tomorrow morning here. We'll be doing exposition. It's the actual process of proclaiming the truth and applying it to contemporary human beings. Okay? So I have my hermeneutical principles. I sit down at my desk. I apply them to that text. I'm doing exegesis. I get all my details put together very nicely I've made decisions about what stays in, what needs to stay in my office, because I can't teach everything I've discovered. I try and package it in a coherent way. Now I get up and declare it, I'm doing exposition. Built on my exegesis, built on my hermeneutics. Now that's the process, you see. So you get up and you do a 45-minute lesson, but there may be 10, 15, 20 hours 
um, of iceberg underneath the water. I don't know how to do it any other way. I, I don't, and, and here's the irony, friends. The longer I've done it and the more education I've had doing it, it doesn't take me any less time. In some ways, it takes me more time because I'm more mindful of questions than I am answers now. The more I've learned, a whole new host of questions I've learned to ask of the text that I didn't even realize were questions before. I say to my students, what's the difference between a freshman, sophomore, junior, senior? A freshman doesn't know that he doesn't know. A sophomore knows that he doesn't know. A junior knows, but he doesn't know that he doesn't know. That he knows. And a senior knows, and he knows that he knows. And in ministry, in Bible study, you never get beyond sophomore. You know that you don't know. The more you, I have two master's degrees and a doctorate degree, and I'm more mindful now of what I don't know than what I know. And that's what will happen to you in Bible study. You'll realize, my goodness, there is a whole, there is a whole chasm of truth here that in my lifetime I don't think I'll ever get to. That's the beauty of the Bible, filled with immensities and infinities. And what you don't do is allow that to bum you out and say, well, then why try? Because there's stuff there for you, stuff you can learn now. Okay, that's exposition. Let me define two other things, the difference between what we call inductive Bible study and deductive Bible study, okay? Inductive Bible study. Induction is a process in which a person begins with, a, with specific individual items, in our case, a biblical text, and puts them together to form a general principle. When using the inductive approach to the study and presentation of the scriptures, a person allows the Bible to speak for itself and its own spirit-inspired truths without preconceived ideas and notions. Huh. This is, this is what a preconceived idea and notion is. I think that dating is wrong. I think we ought to go back to courtship. Okay, let's see if I can find a verse to support that. I think that all forms of birth control are wrong. Let's see if I can find a verse to support that. No, no, no. Inductive Bible says, I'm going to figure out what that text means. And I'm going to bow my knee to what this text says. That's induction. He first approaches the text to discover its spirit-intended meaning, only then to draw out appropriate applications in harmony with that meeting. Inductive Bible says, the Bible rules. I am a servant of the text. I'm a servant of the Bible. I have nothing to say to you tomorrow morning, friends. You do not want to hear from Artaxerdia. You do not want to hear my morality. You do not want to hear my ethics. You do not want to hear my view on politics. I have nothing to say to you. The only thing I have to say to you is what the text itself says. Otherwise, I have no business standing in front of you for 45 minutes. And that's what you must demand of all of the people who would dare to teach you. Their job is to make clear to you the truth of the Word of God. That's their job. That's Ryan's job. I, I can say this strongly because I know he's committed to it. Your responsibility as a congregation is to love him and free him up so he can give himself to that task. If he doesn't have 20 hours a week, friends, then, then, then you need to help create a context in which he can have it. If you want to hear the word of God on the Lord's Day, then that's how you jolly well better create an opportunity for that to happen. That's your job as a congregation. Ryan's not the only one responsible for the preaching that goes on here at this place. The congregation is responsible for the preaching that goes on here. How? Well, number one, you pay the preacher. And number two, you provide him the time to do what God has called him to do. And for Ryan, I don't know. Ryan may be, Ryan may be quicker than me. Maybe Ryan can do it in 12 hours. You know, we don't take a cookie cutter and say it's got to look the same for every person. But however that works out in Ryan's 
life, you need to ensure that he has that kind of... For me at my church, what it meant is from 8 to 1 every day I was unavailable. Barring emergencies. Barring emergencies, if you call our church from 8 to 1 and say, can I see Art, our secretary would say, how about after 1? That was the only way I could be ready on Sundays. And that's true whether the church had 10 people in it or had 400 people in it. Still took me the same amount of time to get ready. Okay. So there, there are some guys who say, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, my door is open 24-7. Thursday, Friday, Saturday, I'm not available to anybody, barring emergencies. Pastors have to do that if they're going to be committed to, if, if they're going to do something more, then get up here and just shoot the breeze with you on Sunday morning, tell you a few stories, get you to laugh, get you to cry, close in prayer. Okay? People are building megachurches off that kind of speaking, but it is not the ministry of the Word of God. Okay? That's inductive Bible study. Deductive Bible study? bit different than that. Deduction is a process in which a person begins with a general principle. Hmm. It's Mother's Day. Let's honor mothers. There's my general principle. And applies it to one or specific instances. In the deductive approach to Bible study, a person goes to the scripture with a preconceived idea. Honor mothers. Honor fathers. I bring that idea to the Bible. A preconceived idea, notion, or concept of what a godly truth or principle is and then attempts to support his idea, notion, or concept with the scripture. Now, now listen, lest you misunderstand. I'm exaggerating, of course, friends, for the sake of effect. But notice, there are times when the deductive approach may be valid and effective. Often this is referred to as topical preaching. However, be alerted. The dangers of this approach are obvious. When a person reads a passage with a certain idea already in mind, he may not see all that there is to see in the passage. He may end up interpreting the text to support his assumptions rather than allowing it to say what it says. The process of reading into the text is also known as eisegesis. Okay? So, Mother's Day. Mothers should be honored. Okay? Let's see. How do we honor them? Uh, we obey them. Okay. Can I find a verse? Oh, yeah. Here's something that says something about obeying mothers. Okay. Uh, we should uh, love them. Can I find a verse? That's, uh, uh, yeah. Okay. This will work. Right here. Love moms. Uh, you know, and whatever. Buy them flowers. Take them to dinner after church. Well, um, I'm bringing something to the text. I'm bringing something to the text. It doesn't mean it can't be done. But in my view, it's a much harder way to preach and teach because you've got to understand how every one of those little passages that you've used to support your argument fits in its own context. And it may not, at the end of the day, be saying what you think or hope that it says. Okay? Let me tell you a true story. <clears throat> when I got to Western, there was a student who knocked on my door one day said, I'm getting ready to graduate and I still haven't taken a preaching class. Can you do an independent study with me? And I was new, had, had a little bit more flexibility in my schedule at the time. I said, sure. And, and one of the things that I asked, there were several assignments, but one of the things I asked them to do was, I want you to listen to ten sermons over the course of the semester, and I want you to give me a really critical evaluation of all ten. What you learned, what was helpful, uh, what you wouldn't do, how this fellow handled the text, blah, 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 blah. So the first Sunday... He does this. It's the pastor of his own church. Largest church in Vancouver. People point to this as the flagship church of the entire city. You know, five services on the weekend. Bulging. 
The guy is an absolutely brilliant communicator. I didn't say he was an exegete. I said he was a communicator. Laughing, crying, hilarious. He'd be a billionaire as a stand-up comic if he wanted to be. Okay? So I meet my student, Michael, Monday or Tuesday, just after that Sunday. We meet at a Starbucks, in fact, in Vancouver. And we get our coffee, we sit down, and uh, I said, Michael, how was the sermon you listened to yesterday? He goes, oh, he goes, Art, it was incredible. He was just so excited about it. I said, really? I was thrilled that he was so excited about preaching because he didn't seem to think it was very important. I said, oh, it was great. I said, what did he preach about? He said he preached about servanthood. Okay, good, important. So let me ask you, if you were going to teach a Bible study, women's Bible study, speaking to the junior hires about servanthood, speaking to a men's group about servanthood, preaching a sermon on servanthood, what passage would you go to, do you think? Which says? Absolutely. Huge. Can you think of any others? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the green lights go on of passages like that. I said, oh, Michael, great. What passage did he preach? He said Ephesians 1, 3 to 14. Now, he was toast because I did my master's thesis on Ephesians 1, 3 to 14. <laughs> and so I knew without even opening my Bible, there's not one word anywhere in there that is in any way related to the concept of servanthood. I didn't say that to him. I said, huh, Ephesians 1, 3 to 14. Sure. Oh, yeah, it was great. I said, well, you know what? While I sip my latte, <clears throat> open up your Bible real quick to Ephesians 1. Oh, yes. And I said, while you're sitting there, take a minute, would you? And just silently read Ephesians 1, 3 to 14 and show me all the places where it talks about servanthood. Okay. Well, right here. Uh, no. Well, th- no. Well, I suppose. Mm, no. Finishes it. Looks up at me and says, doesn't say anything about servanthood. Yeah, and you said it was one of the greatest sermons you've ever heard. You need to learn to distinguish between a good communicator and a good expositor. Your job, teacher, preacher, Sunday school, women's ministry, discipling, counseling. The moment you open up this book, you yield the right to voice your opinions. You are a servant of the text. Okay? You can be a topical kind of person, but be mindful of the potential pitfalls and dangers of stripping things out of its context. Okay? So if it's Mother's Day, instead of creating some concoction out of my own mind, I'm going to go to a passage where mothers are addressed specifically, or I'm going to look at something like the mother of Moses, or I'm going to look at the mother of the Lord Jesus. If I'm talking about fathers rather than creating some kind of concoction out of my own mind that's really cool and slick, I'm going to go to passages that speak directly to and about fathers. So if you say to me, Art, we're having a men's retreat. I'm doing a men's retreat in a couple of weeks. Uh, Come and speak to us about temptation. It's not going to be this buckshot of a little here, little here, little here, little here, little here. We can speak on a topic like temptation, but what I'm going to do is I'm going to begin by the temptation in the garden, and I'm going to do an exposition of Genesis 3. And then I'm going to go to Genesis 39 and do an exposition of Joseph and his temptation with Potiphar's wife. And then I'm going to go to 2 Samuel and talk about David's temptation with Bathsheba. And then I'm going to go to Matthew 4 and talk about Jesus' temptation by the devil. And then I'm going to go to James 1 and talk about your temptations. Talk about a theme. I'm just going to teach the text because the authority is in the text. You follow what I'm saying? 
Nice. It's a bit of a different approach than we hear from a lot of people. You just need to make sure as discerning listeners, you're distinguishing between good communication and faithful exposition. Okay? Don't let one beguile you into thinking that what you're hearing is Bible if it's not. Okay? Any questions about that before we move further and jump into the various steps of Bible study? Comments? Thoughts? Well, I thought that, I thought that, that answers that brother's question earlier. What, what, what do you mean, Terry? Well, he, he asked, he, he asked uh, how come one commentator can say this and the other one on the same subject can say this and they're different. And I think, I think it's, like, it's like you said, the contextual, one does it and then the other don't. The, the one may be a writer and the other uh, an expositor, you know. And yeah. we, can't, we can't divorce this from the Spirit of God anyway. We've got to listen to him and what he said. It's all spiritually discerned. Amen. We're going to get that in just the very next step. I'm going to talk about that very next thing. But, but, yeah, it's important we understand, friends, we never want to put a wedge between the Holy Spirit and study, as though somehow they don't go together. They only go together. Okay, but, 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 but Terry's point is well taken. Yeah, they're, they're, just because somebody has a book in print doesn't mean it's good. It means he got, I mean, publishing is a, I, I have... I have a book published, three others I've contributed to, and two that are coming out in the next six months. And I'll tell you something. As someone who's been in the industry a little bit, it is really a disparaging business, publications. The things that get published are the things that people know that will sell. It's not necessarily because they're committed to the content that's inside those covers. I'm sorry to sound so bleak, but that is the way it is. The fact is you realize that many of our big Bible companies are now owned by secular parent corporations. Zondervan is owned by... Murdoch, right? And Murdoch wants to make money. So just because it says Zondervan or Moody or whoever on the binding doesn't mean anything about what's inside, if it's good or if it's bad. So, yeah, I mean, the reason why some people disagree is that some people are better than others. It's just that simple. Some people are more careful than others. Other, other, uh, Sam, did I see your hand go up earlier? No. I, I just want to comment on, um, I don't know if I lost my thought on it, but saying something that you think is gospel or sh- saying something about child raising and then going to the Bible to see if it backs up what you said can be good if you properly you know, divide the word of truth and realize that what you said was actually wrong. And if we go with that approach, because you know, a lot of times I'll challenge people, them, oh, you're wrong, and force them to go into the word of God, and then they come back. Not that I'm trying to prove the point that I'm right, but that the word is right, and we're going, oh, you were right. And so I encourage, you know, in, even in saying something that you think is gospel truth because you've heard it down through the years, you need to take that and find out that even though the guy's a great expository teacher or whatever, is it what's was like wherever two or three are gathered? You know, I mean, you heard that so many times that people go, well, isn't God with me when I'm just alone? Oh, well, yeah, but... So it's so important that these ideas and think, thoughts that we have that we hear down down through the ages, we need to make sure that we're properly, you know, yeah. doing exegesis in the Word of God, so yeah. that we can know that wow, I'm wrong, and be humble enough to yeah. realize that we are wrong. Well said, well said, Sam. Can can you think of a passage in the Book of Acts where a group of people are specifically commended for doing that kind of thing? 
the Bereans, right? I mean, they daily went to the Bible to see if the things that were being taught were true, right? So that, you know, that's exactly it. We always want to make sure that everything we hear and believe is surrendered to the truth of the Word of God. And sometimes, friends, that can be humbling because you may have thought something and even taught something for 10 or 15 years. And you realize, my goodness, it doesn't stand up to the clear teaching of the text. And changing it is an expression of real humility. And and I'll tell you something, the more public your ministry becomes, the more humility is required. Because I've had people come up to me and said, you know, I heard you say on tape, sorry, I, I was wrong. I think I've grown. I think I've learned. Hopefully, hopefully you learned by seeing my mistakes that we're all growing, you know. But, um, yeah, we always want to submit our thoughts to the word of God. And where today where you see the distortions most commonly, friends, are with regard in my mind or in with regard to so much of the teaching related to family. That's over and over in the literature and in listening to what people say. So much of what out there very, very, mm, has very little to do with what the Bible says. Okay? Uh, yes? All right, I just wanted to comment on the, the, the thought that uh, you were sharing in regards to Brian's ability to study. Yeah. Um, I think that as a, as a body, we have to understand that that is an investment. Yeah. To our own benefit. Yeah. Because most all of us, um, in some way, shape, or form, our lives have been altered in certain ways because of false teaching that we have heard from men who didn't have the time to dedicate to the Word. So, therefore, we entrust that this man that is sharing with us is being led by the Spirit, putting everything in context. And so when we hear him, we go, he's right, because he's the pastor. Mm-hmm. But we've so often been misled because that man who was entrusted with God's word wasn't given adequate time, oftentimes, to properly uh, share with us. Yeah. So for Ryan, if we don't give him the time to study the word... We're the ones who lose. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's exactly right, brother. I mean, I, I couldn't say it any better. And you understand, friends, you've got all kinds of biblical justification for that. I mean, Acts 6, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy. I mean, all kinds of places that we could go to that make clear that that's precisely what, what a person like Ryan is supposed to be doing. And it just, it does take time. It, it does take time. And it is an investment in yourselves. Um, it's interesting because now dealing with young men who are preparing for pastoral ministry and what they're facing out there as they think about graduating and finding a job. I'm not a computer guy. I hate the computer. I, I use it to write, but I just I don't even go online. We have a website. I never look at the thing. I have no idea what's on there. I, uh, uh, <clears throat> but I had my secretary go on a couple of these uh, pastor placement kinds of sites and, and I said, print up some of this stuff for me. And so I've, I've got about 15 of these in a binder that I use for a different class. And it's, you know, here, First Baptist Church of Kalamazoo. And they've got a list. And it's amazing. They'll have a paragraph. We want them to run the men's ministry. Want them to chair the board. Want them to head up the Iwana program. Want them to visit the sick. Want them to do all weddings and funerals. You know, want them to provide a vision for evangelism and missions. 
And then, oh, by the way, we want him to preach a sermon on Sunday morning. I, I, I mean, that, that says everything about that group of people. And, uh, and so I'm saying to my students, you've got to realize that if you step into a situation like that, the first major job that you face is help them to understand what the Bible says a pastor ought to do. Can you show me one verse in the Bible that says as a pastor I have to perform one wedding, let alone do the six premarital counseling sessions, which are absolutely mindless? Premarital counseling has got to be the greatest joke in the history of the church. It's like counseling the mentally insane. You have a couple in your office. You have a couple in your office. Oh, no, we'll never argue about money. Oh, no, we'll never argue about sex. You, you have no idea what you're talking about. Get married and come see me six months later. You'll listen much better. So we got pastors doing all kinds of silliness that we don't find anywhere in the Bible, and we have them not doing the very thing the Bible tells them that they need to do. And that's going to be their... That, that's going to be their objective with that congregation is to help reorient their thing. And some congregations will never go there. I've had friends who've been fired from congregations because they didn't want a pastor who would do that. And, and it's ultimately, as you said so eloquently, to their own detriment. Because if, if you give Ryan this role, this responsibility, and he's faithful to it, you will all be the great beneficiaries of it. In fact, all of Prineville will be the beneficiaries of it. Yeah. Absolutely. And if those messages go online, other people hear them, there'll be people benefiting from what you do on his behalf all over the world. It's amazing how that can happen. Um, Alicia? What does that tell you, Alicia? What is, huh? People are more interested in making money in churches than in having people, just more and more people in their churches than big churches. What, what, what do you think it's saying when they say about someone, you have to have mega church experience? Would they want to be a mega church? That's certainly one. But what if they are a mega church? What if they already are? Are they want to keep, yeah. But all, you know what, friends? You know what all of this is implying? That the most important thing is we want a pastor who's a CEO. We want a business-driven model for ministry. We want a CEO. We want this guy to be a CEO. We want him to be a personality. Gone are the days of the pastor-scholar. The pastor who is an expert in the Word of God. Those days, I, I, I mean, those sad to say, but there are very few churches... That, that, that want that kind of a person anymore. They want a visionary. There are even guys now that are calling themselves the pastor of vision. You know, I'm the visionary pastor here. That means I don't want to get my fingers dirty with people. I just want to sit in my room and get to dictate where the church goes. Okay. And uh, so it's a whole different mind. We have bought into the seeker-sensitive thing so strong that's built on a business model that we want pastors who are CEOs, and today we just, we, this is in part why we have a low view of theological training. 
Any Anything else, and then we'll break. Any other comments? I don't want to start something now. We're at a good break point. Any other comments? It's all been very helpful. Okay, Ryan, you want to give us directions, brother? It's quarter to 12. Okay, we'll uh, break for lunch until 1230, so about 45 minutes. We'll be back here for the next session.